This is the arbitration station. I'm Joel Dahlqvist Kullborg in Gothenburg and in Stockholm we have... I'm Brian Kodik. Welcome back. And today on the arbitration station I will do an interview. Actually, not Brian, just me. Your first one. Yeah, at least my first solo one. I have to figure out all the tech stuff that you normally do. Yep. We'll see what happens. And who are you interviewing? Um, I'm interviewing a woman that I've known for quite some time. Her name is Kendra McGraw, and I've never been able to pronounce her last name, but, but she'll do it properly in a few minutes. She has worked uh, all over the place in both investment and commercial arbitration, but now she is, I think, towards the end of a master's in sports arbitration. Or she, she may actually be doing an internship. Didn't she work at ICSID? Yeah, she worked at ICSID and she's doing a PhD in investment law and she has worked for several firms in several countries and, you know, the the average arbitration career. Wow. <laughs> but now she I'm... is specializing in sports arbitration. And uh, the thing you mentioned when you were watching The Good Wife, do you remember yeah. when they had a sports arbitration hearing at the tracks on the side of a running track yeah. with multiple <laughs> international flags behind it too. exactly so i'm going to ask her a is that the way it's done <laughs> and b what is sports arbitration more generally is she actually practicing now in sports arbitration we'll f find that out oh exciting i'm not sure we haven't kept up so this is also a reason for me to you know get to talk to people i should be talking to more often anyway yeah and where are you going to be interviewing her in The Hague, I don't know exactly where we will both be at this conference, the unseen adjudicators that I mentioned yes. before. Which you'll have to report back on, actually. Yes, that will be on the next episode, I guess. But you've been away for, the, for the second episode. You've been to London, and that has yes. something to do with your second segment that I still don't know what it is, right? It's funny because we were both talking about how it's conference season and we're not going to any conferences and you're going to the Hague and I went to London for a conference pretty last minute um, and it was the 29th ITF public conference on treaty law issues and international investment law and it happened on the 20th of October and so talking about reporting back this will be one of our substantive segments because we'll kind of get into the nitty-gritty of some investment law substantive issues uh, that I heard about but it was truly an impressive conference. I, I was so, you know, and I'm the most skeptical person in the audience, but it was really, really good. Every panel was well prepared. Every panel was well spoken. Every single person on each panel had a different point of view. They obviously talked beforehand. Um, there were wide topics, but each individual speaker got very specific. The networking was on point. I was, I was a happy camper. It's the exact polar opposite of everything we said, uh, the typical arbitration conferences when we were bad-mouthing yeah. the, the arbitration circuit on, on air. Yeah. That's good, I though. I mean, it, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a reformed conference goer after this one. I really, really enjoyed it. So we'll kind of walk through the panels, but also kind of get into the substantive issues because I think you'll find some of it pretty interesting. Oh, so it's a smorgasbord of various substantive issues. Yes, and I know what that is because, drumroll, I'm a Swedish citizen. Jesus, In, insert trumpets and uh, champagne <laughs> bottles. <laughs> Finally. And the funny thing is that, well, congratulations, first of all. Second Thank of all, I, we have to do a segment on dual nationals and their standing in international investment arbitration, because that's a right. good topic. So, so we can talk about the extent to which you can now sue the US and or Sweden. <laughs> I'm going to sue Trump. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, assuming TTIP enters into force, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, but so you were now Swedish and American at the same time. At the same time. If that's even possible, like emotionally and f philosophically and ideologically. But I am, and it's very, very exciting. I've been here for six years, um, and I loved like the Swedes commenting when I posted it on all my social medias, to be posted on my Twitter coming soon. Stay tuned for that one. Uh, but everyone was like, gratis Brian, or gratis Sverige. It was like so funny, and it was like so <laughs> in tune with like, you know, the, hum the humility of this country. It was just like, we are so happy to have you represent us in the world. Yeah, we are though. 
welcome and thank, thank you, you for coming thank you <laughs> you're welcome you're you're welcome uh and then for happy fun time topic is common law versus civil law in arbitration or is there such a distinction exactly we hear it so often in every facet of studies practicing arbitrator appointments this this distinction always comes up so let's myth bust it let us all right well let's move on to your first interview Yeah, we're on. Oh. That's that's the way we roll. Good morning. Yeah, good morning and good afternoon, <laughs> Kendra McGraw. Yes. Good. I always butcher your uh, your last name when I try to pronounce it. That was perfect. Very very good. You used to work everywhere, basically <laughs> commercial arbitration and investment arbitration for firms and for institutions. Yep, correct. That's not why you are here now. You are here to give me and our listeners a primer on sports arbitration. Yes. Well, would you like to start with questions or how would you like me to proceed? I'm going to uh, act like, like a prosecutor <laughs> and ask the tough questions. First of all, Brian watched an episode of The Good Wife that when they had a sports arbitration. Have you seen this? Uh, no, I haven't. Was it a U.S. sports arbitration? That's the thing. It was a U.S. TV show, but the sports arbitration was in Baseball. French. No. Oh. So they, the U.S. firm, I mean, obviously, this is like a, a Disney TV show. Okay. They were thrown in very late, apparently, as counsel, and they showed up in the hearing, which they were maybe even in Switzerland. Yeah. But the funny thing is that it, the actual hearing table was at the running tracks with like flags of all the different nations mm -hmm. so like people running in the background and that's where they had the sports arbitration yes so first question is there is there anything like that well i've never personally been to one so this is all anecdotal in the sense that i couldn't tell you from first-hand experience but yes there there are ad hoc what they're called uh arbitrations which are divisions of the cas which are made specially for sporting events and i couldn't even tell you exactly how many there are but every now since like i think 1994 or so, no, 1996, at the Atlanta Olympic Games mm -hmm. is when they started these ad hoc um, kind of arbitration divisions. And it's also for FIFA, and it's for several of the major sporting events like the IAF, which is the Athletics Federation. So if they're running in the background, that's probably what that was in reference to. So in theory, it, that could have been accurate in the sense that it could have, because it seems to be some sort of emergency, very quick Absolutely. Thing. So maybe they have the hearings like at the event. They do, and there's a timeline of 24 hours. And I think if we're looking at sports arbitration versus you know commercial or investment arbitration, that to me is one of the major major differences is that the timeliness of the disputes, the urgency of when a decision needs to be rendered is usually very, very quick. And especially in the context of a competition where you might have to decide on a question of eligibility, is somebody disqualified because of an on-field kind of penalty or error, that has to be decided within 24 hours or less. And so that's why they created these ad hoc divisions where they do, they have a roster of judges who come to the games, they have pagers that are distributed and they get... Like it's 1999. Pretty much. I mean, it started in 96, so it's <laughs> not that good. far off. And they still keep it up with the pagers. <laughs> they just don't, you know, what's tried and true. Sometimes you don't, if you don't break it. <laughs> so that is probably very accurate, actually. But I don't know if you would bring in external lawyers. That's probably up to the athlete in question. Um, whereas... Yeah, if you have yeah. external counsel. Person. Precisely. As the athlete, the, the organization will probably have counsel on site. So you mentioned CAS already, CAS, yes. Court of Arbitration for Sports, correct? Which is in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And is it anything like the ICC or the LCAA, or is it a super specific body? So I would compare it more to ICSID or the PCA, in that it has it's a secretariat and it has case secretaries, which I think the ICC and LCIA don't. They have to they kind of outsource that aspect. Whereas at the piece, at the CAS, the CAS, they have a tribunal secretary per case. And that person, and they might have external ones also, just like they do at PCA or ICSID. But that's what I would think it's most comparable to, in fact. And how do parties typically consent to 
cost arbitration? That is a complicated and very good question um, and contentious because a lot of athletes have contested the jurisdiction of the CAS. Based on an alleged uh, lack of consent. Precisely, and lack of privity. Um, For mostly, the the primary way that there's consent on the part of athletes is through the regulations of a given federation. So if you're a football player, a professional football player, you're regulated by the FIFA regulations. In the FIFA regulations, this is actually a huge turning point for the CAS, in fact. So this is a, I'm answering two questions and that you haven't even asked yet in one, um, which is in 1994, or 2004, excuse me, 2004 FIFA put in its regulations that they recognized CAS uh, as the appellate's mechanism okay. for their own administrative Procedures. So the first instance is FIFA-based, and then you have the second instance, you go to CAS. Precisely. And by in those regulations, by playing in any FIFA-organized event or really being a professional football player, essentially, you are bound to CAS. And several athletes have challenges saying, you know, I didn't agree, I had no choice by participating in whatever event, you know, now almost all of the federations and all athlete, all Olympic sports recognize the CAS, um, have this type of setup. So if you participate in any event organized by the federation, then you are going to CAS if you have a dispute. And they said, but I had no choice. It's a contract of adhesion. I, there's no privity. I didn't even sign anything. And th- that has been found not to matter. Because at the end of the day, it's kind of a commercial choice. You know, you're not being forced yeah, exactly. to participate. You can go yeah. to play amateur level somewhere else. Instead. Exactly. Or get a different job. Don't be an athlete. So that's kind of the approach that's been taken. Ah, I see. Because I, I obviously know nothing about this. And I always assumed it was sort of a contractual thing. But this sounds more like what you have in many jurisdictions when you have statutory arbitration. So it's, it's provided for, for in, a, in an legislative act that if you fit you know, the description X, Y, Z, this type of dispute has to be solved by arbitration. So just by being in that uh, category of persons, you are automatically yeah. comprised by an arbitration agreement. Precisely. And I mean, within one interesting feature of the CAS, which I think also differentiates it from other arbitral institutions, is that it has two divisions. And the first is an ordinary procedure, and the second is the appellate. And the appellate procedures are by far the bulk of their caseload, which so it's about 80%, I believe. And the ordinary, so the first, bear with me a little bit because this is a bit of an explanation, but the ordinary procedures could be something commercial. So I happen to be Nike, and this is just an example, Nike and another sport company who create a contract, and because they're both sports-related, they select CAS in the event of a dispute in their contract. But otherwise, it's just a commercial dispute. And those are typically the ordinary procedures. Now, the ones that are the 80% are the appellate ones, and that's kind of the structure you and I went through before, which is that it goes first to FIFA, um, or, or some other sport. Yeah, players. I'm saying FIFA because football is also 80% of the disputes. Um, and also the, I was going to say the best sport, but I guess you and I both agree <laughs> hockey is yeah, superior. We're to both football. hockey fans yeah. here, so <laughs> not that we don't like football, but we just prefer hockey. Um, yeah, so then, then this creates a whole other interesting dynamic, which is that by the time the dispute comes to CAS, it already has a record, which you don't find in most of the kind of disputes you and I are familiar with. True, because in that mm-hmm. capacity, they are essentially acting as an appellate body. Right. So they already have the facts and the law laid out, and they have to act on appeal. Mm-hmm. And maybe not even the law. It's more regulations of an organization. Um, but that, that it creates a host of issues that I don't know if we have time to get into. But um, the CAS tribunals do review de novo. So there is the opportunity to introduce evidence that you I didn't see, introduce in the first instance. But there is a record that you're contending with. Um, so that's another unique aspect of these arbitrations. I'm starting to see why it's so attractive to so many people <laughs> to, to do this. But in the, so in the former category of cases, when you go directly to CAS, in that sense, it's basically like going to any other commercial institutional arbitration. Absolutely. And those are usually commercial contracts because there, there has to be direct privity. Yeah. Um, and it's more at the appellate level where you get the typical sport dispute, which is an athlete or, you know, a club against an association or a, a, that kind of dynamic. Yes, I, I might be too, too nerdy and too specific now, but I, I always talk about place of arbitration on this podcast. So in 
it's in Lausanne. Yeah. Is it also automatically legally seated in Lausanne? Exactly. So it if, is. if you want to challenge the f- first instance workers, you go to the Swiss Federal Tribunal. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they did that for a reason. I mean, and unlike other arbitral institutions, you can't opt out of that. And they want that to be tied to Switzerland um, because they selected the, the seat and the court seat to be the Swiss courts as the final court of... That's got to be a big coup on behalf of the Swiss arbitration community. <laughs> well, I think that, that yeah, it could have been. But it, apparently the Swiss arbitration laws are very pro-arbitration in a way that uh, other jurisdictions in Europe are not. So Unlike this was deliberate. S- yeah. Sweden being the other... <laughs> really? Ah, well, let's put in a plug for at least the hockey court. Yeah, yeah exactly. Sweden. That would make perfect sense, though, or maybe in Canada it would make more sense. Oh, uh, let's go Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> so you are now undertaking a master's program, which is not in Switzerland. It is not. It's in Madrid. It's called the... It's a master's in sports law, essentially, at the Instituto Superior de Derecho y Economía, ISTE. Is so it's, it's not specifically tailored to arbitration, it's sports law more widely, substantively. yeah. And within that, every semester has different um, syllabi because it depends on the professors that they're able to get that semester. But we had a lot of arbitration-based courses, which were obviously of primary uh, interest to me. And I'd imagine to many other of your fellow students as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. And how many of them go on to work in Switzerland? That's a very good question. I don't know. Probably, I mean, Switzerland is the home of sport. Uh, because of the CAS is there, the IOC is also there. There's over almost 30 federations, I think, are based in Lausanne alone. And then you have several in Zurich and s- scattered around some in Geneva. So it's it's pretty attractive if you want. It's kind of a home base. But a lot of my classmates do go on and work on more domestic um, situations rather than international sport per se and work at a club in in Germany or in Spain or in Portugal. And is it, um, is it fair to say that most of the people taking this program are also interested in sports? Absolutely. You wouldn't do that kind of thing if you're not interested in the subject matter. I can't imagine why because it's pretty much, you have to like not only sports but sports law. <laughs> but otherwise it would be pretty... Pretty uninteresting to you, I would imagine. It's a very big thing in the United States, no? That people do sports law because the professional associations there seem to be so much bigger and, of course, being American also generate more more disputes and more legal issues. Are you saying we're litigious? (laughs) No, that's an excellent question and is actually one reason I did my sports master in Europe as opposed to the U.S. is because we have a very unique system, I would say, of sports Generally, because our big sport is American football, which isn't very international, um, but also we don't have a domestic law to sports. So U.S. sports law, if I can even say that, is mostly derived from contract law, employment law, and other areas of law to kind of create... I don't, I don't even know if you can say create a body of law because there's not... Yeah, but so it seems because the leagues are franchises. Right. They're not just clubs and associations. Right. They're, legally speaking, they're franchises. So the There's league owns the, the right and mm-hmm. then they give out those rights to franchisees, i.e. the, the clubs. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be a different universe altogether compared to... Completely. Completely. Whereas in Europe, if you had a club moving cities, that's kind of almost like traitor, you're, you're betraying the whole fan base in the U.S. That's just a commercial decision. And yeah, exactly. The, the Winnipeg it. team is now in Minnesota. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, international even. You're losing. Canada now has <laughs> lost a couple hockey teams and not... Oh, that, would, that would create riots yeah, in the European it's, context. It's completely unheard of here. Um, but the other big difference is the way that the contracts are negotiated. Um, the U.S. has a salary cap for almost every sport besides, I think, baseball. That can't be right. No, I think baseball is the only one that they don't. Um, so that creates very different payment structure and management yeah. of teams than you have in Europe, like the Neymar acquisition exactly, that just cause, happened. Exactly, you because you're not allowed to pay for players too, right? It's not just that you have a salary cap. You can't pay for a transfer. You have to trade, right? Yeah, you have to trade. I mean, that's a a different type of payment. It might not be monetary, but you're... Yeah, but you don't have the same thing as you have in many European sports leagues, that you can have an external owner coming in from the outside with like four billions, and then you can buy a super team in no time. That wouldn't work in most American leagues. uh, Yeah, in most American leagues, that wouldn't work um, because of the salary cap. 
and that's something that's been, you know, it works and it doesn't work, I think. Uh, there's a lot of challenges based on that for American teams. Um, and the other big difference is their labor agreement, which is they do it through a collective bargaining agreement that's ne negotiated by the union um, of the players. And they, you don't have that in Europe either. Um, many countries have domestic legislation just for sports law um, or just for certain sports. So, And then that's governed under those type of labor regulations, and you don't have what we have. So in a way, I think the sports law is more advanced in Europe in a different sense than it is in the United States. And I wouldn't, I don't know how many specialized programs there are in the U.S., but I don't think there's very many. It would more be grouped as sport and entertainment law. So also dealing with Hollywood or, you know, any kind of entertainment. I, yeah, I want to be Ari Gold. Where do I go to study to become exactly. Ari Gold? Exactly. Or, I mean... I've heard of practitioners in the United States also doing like adult entertainment along with their sports practice. I mean, it's really broad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, obvious, <laughs> obvious, very obvious. Uh, so that's one reason I came to this program in 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 Madrid. So what now? You've worked for a com for a firm with commercial arbitration. You worked at UNCTAD, mm -hmm. at ICSID, ICJ. Yes. What do you do now? Are you going to become a full-time sports arbitrator, oh. sports arbitration practitioner? I don't think I'm ready for that yet, but there are several people who do do that. I'm, I still have to complete my master's, so that's the first step. Um, the program I chose has both academic and internship requirements, so I still have to do my internship. Um, and then after that, we'll see. But there, one reason I chose this is because it's so similar to what I was doing before in terms of as long as I follow in the arbitration, um, it really creates a, a breadth of opportunities, and there's many practitioners who do do both. Um, there's several prominent arbitrators I could name, but uh, for example, in Switzerland, you have um, Levy Kaufman Kohler. They have both an investment arbitration and a sports arbitration practice group in their um, offices, and that's their two main areas. Um, so I think it's a very, very feasible way forward. It seems so. And it also seems like we are skipping uh, a panel I think that accomplished here in the, in the head. Do you have About anything ethics. else? Yeah, uh -oh. yeah, that's right. The ethics Jesus. of skipping a panel. That's ironic. Do you have anything else you want to add? Maybe give some advice to people interested in sports arbitration or something that I've, I've missed because I didn't prepare for this interview? <laughs> No, I think you've asked very wonderful questions, and we could talk, you know, several more hours about the specificities of what's called the specificity of sport. Uh, but, yeah, the only advice is anybody who's interested in it, you just have to get involved. And that's one reason I did the master's, because it's a very difficult field to break into, um, even more so than an investment. Yeah, you don't really run into sports mm -hmm. arbitration people at, at conferences or in your normal work. No. I mean, it's also increasing. I think probably since the in this, since 2000, I would say, it's increased a lot. And there's more attention turning to it and more people devoting full-time practice to it. Um, so it's on the rise. But it's still very difficult. I mean, it's it's fun. Everybody wants to be involved in sports and get to go do arbitrations on the side of a of a competition. So, it's if you want to be in this area, then publish, go to a program, uh, go volunteer. But wait a couple of years until you have established yourself as a name, so the competition is less. Fierce. I think so. I'm certainly glad I have my background. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kendra. Thank you, Joel. This is wonderful. Welcome back to the second segment of this episode, talking about the 29th ITF Public Conference, Treaty Law Issues and International Investment Law. And as I said, this happened on the 20th of October, and I flew down to London. It was just a one-day conference, and it was talking about questions of applicability, interpretation, and succession of treaties, and whether they are decisive for the resolution of many investor-state disputes. Um, and so it, they kind of brought up a lot of complex issues that happen. It seemed theoretical when I read the um, the handouts of, you know, the, all the panels and the keynote address and everything. Uh, but then we really got into it and it was exciting. So it started off. Well, first of all, so this is the um, Bickle. So it's the British Institute of International and Comparative Law. That's where it was held. Um, and they hosted the event and the, this was kind of important because, um, the investor treaty forum 
director is new this year and his name is Professor Yarek Cravoy and he was kind of trying to show his chops of trying to get everything together. So I think that may have been why it was really, really good. Um, oh, I and see. That makes sense. Just a side note, that professor and Professor Dr. Kai Hobert wrote a book recently called The Law and Practice of International Arbitration in the CIS Region. Um, I don't know if you knew about that, but um, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they do a country-by-country country analysis of regulation and practice of international arbitration in 10 CIS jurisdictions. Um, so he's kind of close to the Swedish jurisdiction at the moment. So that's kind of exciting. Uh, and then there was a keynote address by Professor Cam Campbell McLaughlin, QC, who is a professor at Victoria University of Wellington Law School in New Zealand. There was a lot of Kiwis on this panel. That's uh, always the case. I was talking to a friend of mine who works for a or I think he still does as we record this, he works for from London and he's from New Zealand. And he mentioned that it's, it's a thing, uh, especially in, in, you know, around in the community of arbitration people, we think that people from New Zealand are good at arbitration. And apparently they are because they're everywhere. They are everywhere. It's like the Switzerland this of Asia. <laughs> Although That's it's located true. like way, way, way away from everything <laughs> as opposed to Switzerland <laughs> being in the very middle. I've never been there, and I don't know how and when that's going to happen because it's so far away. Yeah, I mean, it depends on where you are and what your what your outlook is. Yeah, actually, from LA, if you go behind the world, as I like to say, uh, it's a lot closer. So maybe in that. That's true, and there are also other places than London and LA in which you can be. <laughs> what? <laughs> Wait, what? Uh, okay. So the first panel was panel one, and it was the title of the panel was Entering into Effect and Application of Unratified Investment Treaties. So you think, okay, that it seems a bit simple on its face, but it was actually very complicated. So the chair of that was Maurice Mendelssohn, who was at Blackstone Chambers. And the first speaker was this very well-spoken woman named Davinia Aziz uh, from Singapore, and she was the attorney general of... Uh, she works at the Attorney General's Chambers in Singapore and also teaches at the National University of Singapore. Um, and she kind of talked about logistically how treaties come into effect and how you ratify a treaty and kind of what it means and how it applies into the local jurisdiction in their domestic law um, and kind of just a very simple outlay of the issue. Uh, but then it gets complicated. Um, Graham Coop from Voltaire and Fieta in London actually did the next uh part of that panel. And he talked about the application of treaties between sovereigns and their territories. So he talked about uh, treaties and actual investment disputes that have come up between, um, you know, you have the United Kingdom, but then you have the Isle of Man, and then you have um, all of the Gibraltar. BVI. Yeah. Gibraltar, exactly. Um, do you know that, like, that case offhand? It's, it's an ECT case, yeah. right? Or no? Okay, no, I thought you, you uh, the way you pitched it, it sounded like the, the thing was disputes between Sovereign X and some sort of entity connected to Sovereign X. And that I don't know about, I think. Right. Um, so it, he kind of, he kind of touched into a lot of stuff on, because there is this thing, especially in the ECT, about um, if you do not want the provisional application of a treaty to apply to you or the or for it to apply to a territory of a sovereign, there needs to be a declaration renouncing the application of the treaty or renouncing the provisional application of that treaty. So he kind of talked about how, um, especially when you talk about succession of states, um, when you have a territory that either secedes or, um, or if someone, and we talked about, you know, um, Russia and Crimea, if, you know, if, uh, country takes over a new territory how do those treaty applications extend mm. to those territories or in, in the converse situation how mm. those treaties would be renounced by these newly sovereign territories there's a great case on this which i guess is the leading case and i assume it was discussed the sonum sanum versus laos case that was yes. seated in singapore because they had the, th the thing that that very topic was at the center both in the arbitration and in uh, two different instances of the, of the set-aside proceedings before two different courts in Singapore with respect to Macau and Macau's exactly. uh, status when 
uh, were under the treaty between China and, and Laos. Because Macau used to be a Portuguese yeah. colony? Right. Right. Uh, so you think, I mean, when I heard this, I was like, I mean, okay, the chances of this coming up in an investment treaty arbitration, like what, I mean, it's, it's such a, I mean, to move territories and acquire new territories. But then I, when we were talking about it, it happened quite often. Yeah. And the um, Crimea, I mean, there's a handful yeah. of, of Crimea related cases pending at the jurisdictional stage as we speak. So that's obviously a, a big uh, forum. Yeah. And then it all led up to the very eloquent and inspiring Emmanuel Gaillard talking about UCOS. Um, and so he talked about the provisional application of treaties as it related to the ECT, because um, in that case, as most or some of our listeners know, uh, the, that Russia never ratified the ECT. So pending the ratification, uh, did Russia agree to apply the treaty to the extent... So did Russia agree, agree to be subject to the provisional application of the treaty? And then how and to what extent it would be bound by the treaty provisions? Um, and so he kind of talked about the interrelation between international law, Russian law, the travaux, because what he was talking about basically, and this was um, a, kind of a very specific issue in the case, but I guess we can talk about it, is that when you look at the provisional application of the ECT, there's a specific provision, which is mm. Article 41, 45. Uh, 1 and 2. Um, exactly. So 45.1 says that each signatory agrees to apply this treaty provisionally pending its entry into force. And then 45.2 says, notwithstanding paragraph one, any signatory may, when signing, deliver to the depository a declaration that it is not able to accept provisional applications. The obligations contained in paragraph one should not apply to a signatory making such a declaration, and any such signatory may at any time withdraw that declaration by written notification to the depository. So there were two sides taken in that case, and I really think... And here's the gossip of the arbitration station. I really think he just took part of his opening statement because we have worked together in a case and I, you kind of know the style of an opening statement. It's like a PowerPoint with things like jumping out and being highlighted. Yeah, because he um, was, I don't think we mentioned that he was of oh, course, yeah. lead counsel for Yukos in the arbitration and is still, I guess, working uh, both in the set aside in The Hague and somehow with the enforcements that are going on in multiple uh, fora. Exactly. And I just read an article that they were in Harvard talking about UCO. So they're, they're going on this like, you know, road trip, this road show talking yeah, about Yeah, well, that's good. You need to have a, a certain uh, amount of, uh, uh, you know, the source basically and why, yeah. why he's giving the speech he's giving. But that, Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. But that's why everyone was kind of hanging on to it, because it was kind of like, let's hear it from the horse's mouth. Um, so when interpreting the really inter so we talked about the interpretation between the ECT, specifically how 45.1 interacts with 45.2. Um, so the Russian Federation argued that the two separate regimes, i.e. each section, 45.1 and 45.2, um, existed, A, with this related to the inconsistency of laws. So there was a piecemeal comparison of each ECT provision uh, or B, making a separate declaration opting out of the provisional application. So is 45.2 related to 45.1 or is it in its own separate regime? Um, and the claimants viewed the ECT 45.1 as substantive, which can only be invoked by fulfilling the declaration requirement found in ECT Article 45.2. Mm. So he kind of like talked about this um, interpretation and the tribunal relied on the Vienna Convention to interpret the ECT provisions. Um, so they, he kind of like went through that um, whole limitation clause analysis and uh, in his, I think, extremely charming French accent, um, really talked about it, uh, the issues. And then he also talked about something that was quite interesting, which is there's this denial benefits clause in the treaty. Mm. And that's like a alternative argument, I guess. They said that the denial benefits clause in that treaty would relate to the arbitration agreement or the dispute resolution provision, meaning that if they didn't get arbitration as a result of this, it would have been a denial benefit under the treaty. Did he mention the Hague District Court? 
Yes. Decision because they also applied the Vienna Convention and and those articles on treaty interpretation are so open ended that it doesn't really give you that much. And they of course came to a different conclusion than did the tribunal, and they exactly. set aside the award. So I, I I'm curious to hear whether or not he addressed that, and I would assume that he was a bit critical. He did, and he said it was wrong. But uh, <laughs> it, is it? It's on appeal now. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it so, might, it go, it's on appeal, as I understand it, before the, the like a court of appeal. And there's also another layer, so the Supreme Court. So them, it might be yet another layer of appeal to be expected. So it was just exciting. It was, uh, you know, hearing it from the horse's mouth. And he wasn't very shy about it. You know, some people are really shy about getting into the details of the case. But it was public, and he really just laid it all out there. So it was kind of... You know, I respected it because I'm in favor of transparency. Let me let me just ask you this now before we go too far into this, because uh, it's not a substantive question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> are, are we doing something wrong? Are you doing something wrong now by talking about this? Because it's a conference setting, and I, I mean, Gayad was probably comfortable because of the sort of closed room setting. People pay a lot of money to be there, and so you know, is there some sort of Chatham rules? You know. Am I making no. sense? Like it, what's being I mean, said maybe. within these four walls should stay here. And then, of course, you can talk to you know, colleagues and whatnot. But to broadcast it widely to thousands <laughs> of people the way we are, is that sort of undermining? I don't know. I'm just asking. I, yeah, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't know. the. Maybe we are pushing it. But I don't I mean, I don't think anything that I just said is a not public or b revealing something that shouldn't have been revealed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking. I, I think maybe you're. Ahead. I think you're maybe you're right. If he had said something like, "Oh, that expert witness is the most incompetent person in the room," and I disclosed that, maybe that he wouldn't appreciate that. That's true. But I mean, his ar- line of arguments. I don't know. I no, that's okay. probably true. But isn't that the nature of of the Chatham rules? If they did apply here, apply within quotation marks, and I'm not sure. I know it's the case with the OGMIT list that we already disclosed a few times. What's what's been discussed on that email list. Which yeah. you're not really supposed to be doing, I think. But it seems like the publisher of that email list has been giving us a thumbs up. So, Yaroslav Bickle, uh, sorry if, if Brian is violating some sort of honor code. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Don't. I mean, where are you? We should talk about this. Where are you going to charge me? And which ethics violation would I be violating? Because <laughs> there is none. Uh, so then, so that was panel one, and then I had, then we had a coffee break, and I was, I was really thinking about the arbitration station because I needed a network during that coffee break. I finally talked to someone. It ended up being student. I was like not so happy with my choice of who to network with, but it worked out fine. You <laughs> uh, cynical. I got, I got a LinkedIn, you know, friend out of it, so that's great. And then there was panel two, which was the application and interpretation of international treaties, and to make sure that this segment doesn't go entirely long i'll um go a little bit quicker but um though there was three speakers on this there was um romish wiramantri from clifford chance in hong kong there was david gark roger from the oecd mm. france i don't know if you know him yeah i met them i haven't met the Mantri, but his doctoral dissertation on treaty interpretation is so good i'm using it a lot in my own research and david the oecd guy is uh very important not to say OCD guy because that's a whole different thing. <laughs> right, OECD. Right. He's Canadian, I think. He he is. He's written yeah. a lot of stuff that overlaps with what I'm doing on appointing authorities and how like commercial institutions come into play in in treaty arbitration. So we met a few times. Yeah, I was writing a submission uh, last year, and we had to kind of like break down some really fundamental elements of like expropriation and fair and equitable treatment. And I found the OECD articles that he has probably been involved with to be extremely helpful, clear, basic, yet illustrative. Um, So I can really recommend those for people trying to kind of like dig their teeth into a topic. They just released an article and it was available to the people at the conference. I don't know if it's online yet, but it was talking about shareholders' rights in investor treaty arbitration. So I thought that was quite good. They're Um, pretty productive. It's like a think tank of academics, basically. Yeah. The only problem, and he kind of like used this disclaimer consistently throughout his speech, is that their consultation for certain, uh, they were talking about the application and interpretation of treaties. So uh, how states view 
the application of certain treaties or their, uh, what was it? Kind of like how they see treaty regimes as relating to their domestic jurisdictions of, uh, he kept saying that they only talk to the States. Um, so he said a lot of, a lot of their information is coming from the States themselves. They don't talk to practitioners. They're not talking to investors. I mean, that's, uh, if you know that and keep that in mind, that's just a very good thing because you don't have a lot of things like that. Not a lot of fora like the OECD where you have state input only. Normally it's the problem is that you have input from a lot of other stakeholders and not from the States. So having, and also I guess uh, it's, it's implied it's a, it's a specific kind of state in the OECD because it's uh, an organization for Western slash industrialized nations. Right. With 3,400 employees, I found out. so, and then the final speaker of that panel, which is what I kind of want to elaborate on, is Professor um, Tomoko Ishikawa from Nagoya University in Japan, who was so impressive. It was, um, she gave an interpretation of basically how international law should be used. So just like you were saying, like the Vienna Convention is kind of this soft, like, you know, how are we supposed to interpret treaties? We go to the object and purpose. And that's really what Ramesh focused on, which was kind of like, when you say object and purpose, how far does that take you? Um, if you have a treaty that has multiple objects and purposes, uh, how or purposes, how, uh, what can relate to what in the interpretation of the treaty? Um, it was so you, it kind of like brought this very fundamental discussion on the Vienna Convention and kind of elevated it to this level of like pushing it to the nth degree. Why what perf- wasn't I there? I don't know, Joel, I don't know. And then what Professor Ishikawa talked about was international law and its ability to be uh, to uh, be an interpretive tool for treaties. Um, and that kind of rang a bell with me and it came up in her presentation, but it was something that I had worked on previously and it's kind of a new case that came out, which is the Philip Morris v. Uruguay case. Uh, specifically, and they talked about um, the fair and equitable treatment standard, but what I want to talk about right now, which wasn't talked about in the uh, conference, which I was going to raise my hand and I was like, is this a good enough question? I put myself through the filter that we encourage our listeners to do. I didn't ask the question, but I was still thinking about it. And basically their analysis um, on expropriation is uh, a bit interesting because what they did is they used, they said article 5.1 in this BIT, could, which is the expropriation article, could be interpreted or must be interpreted in accordance with Article 31.3c of the Vienna Convention, such that the provision must be interpreted in light of customary international law as a, quote, relevant rule of international law applicable to the relation between the parties. Mm -hmm. And then the tribunal used that as a whole to get to the fact that the police powers of states is a reflected principle in customary international law and must be applied to the expropriation analysis accordingly. And then what the tribunal did in this case is used the analysis of the police powers principle to say if there was a type of taking, which is, I want to flag that, that you can define taking to mean expropriation, but there's also takings that do not rise to the level of expropriation. Sure. Uh, But to go through this analysis of the police powers and say if which the analysis of the police powers is very similar to what it is for lawful expropriation. But if you go through this analysis and then you get to the conclusion that this was an effective use of the police powers, then this type of taking or, you know, taking meaning non-expropriatory taking would fall outside of the definition of expropriation in the treaty or the, in this case, the BIT. And therefore it would not be an expropriation at all. And therefore no compensation would have, uh, been needed to be paid. Whereas if you think of like how, especially if we look to the purpose of the treaty and the plain language of the treaty, any taking needs to be compensated, right? And so they kind of, so what Philip Morris did is it kind of said, okay, well, customary international law is now this interpretive tool that we can use through the Vienna Convention to now interpret the treaty to mean that there are some types of takings, as long as it's an effective use of the police powers doctrine, that does not require compensation. So it's basically redlining the treaty yeah. um, using customary international law. 
Hmm. Super interesting. I, I haven't read that case actually, but it sounds like making violence on the on the language of the of Article Five of the treaty. Yeah. So the thing to say about that case is it wasn't decided on that. It was kind of like, a, oh, by the way, we want to stretch, uh, we want to stretch our theoretical minds and talk about this. That's I wrote an article about this a few years ago. We should talk about that as well in the future. Is that a good idea that tribunals do that, even if they don't need to, in order to to solve the case? I'm not sure that's a good idea because it creates exactly what you are addressing now. It creates confusion yeah. when no confusion is needed because they could decide the case on another point anyway. So it's just uh, extracurricular activities. Yeah. So that was the second panel. And then panel three had to do with termination, withdrawal, and succession of investment treaties chaired by the so charming Paula Hodges uh, from Hermit Smith. I just love her. Is this the Starstruck thing your general mode, or was this just an extraordinary day? <laughs> I, think, I think at this point I was on cloud nine. I was just, <laughs> nothing can go wrong. Everybody was just impressing me. Uh, and that, and you know, I'm not going to get into the panel three because this this has already gone on too long, but. Um, to sum up, I think there were some really good substantive issues addressed. I think that the panels were well prepared. I really enjoyed all of it. We and, should all have been there. And you should all have been there and paid extreme amounts of money. <laughs> uh, but it was really worth it. So that's, that's my review. That's my recap. Happy fun time. <laughs> Is that the new addition to the jingle? <laughs> Happy fun time. Common law versus civil law makes it sound like a very, very bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> One that you would watch, definitely. Yeah, for sure. And so would a lot of other people. But this it's a good segue now that you are uh, Swedish. Yes. Citizen, at least. Maybe not a Swedish lawyer, necessarily. Where is your allegiance on this common versus civil law uh, spectrum? On, on, oh, on the spectrum or in, like, on my view on the fact that there's a versus between the two? Okay, you want to be all that theoretical. Okay, but back all the way up then. And question <laughs> no, the I, I'm common law. I'm common law. <laughs> I'm common law with, like, a, a dash of paprika and, like, a dash of civil law okay i see but to be fair i just realized that sweden isn't really a, a pure civil law country either we always tend to bring up the fact that sweden is somewhere in between the traditional common law and the traditional civil law world so why do why do they say that because we are not as code based as many continental european jurisdictions are we have a lot of judged made law similar to the common law system and we don't really have you know an active a constitution or a one book slash code that sets everything down in writing in legislative form. So it's a little bit more flexible and closer to, to common law in that respect. Although, of course, we don't have the, you know, the actual judgment law in the sense that we, the judges can make shit up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But you guys do reference and in like litigation and Swedish arbitration, you can reference case law. As, an, as persuasive authority, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. And we don't really have legislation that is intended to be all-encompassing in the same way that French or German codes were at least originally intended to be. So there's a lot of understanding for the fact that you need other uh, sources than primarily, of course, uh, judge right. decisions, I think. So maybe you are not really, you haven't become a hardcore civil lawyer by, by way of nationality just yet. No. But when I worked in um, Spain, I was working on some drafting and I, I mean, I, I was baffled by the use of like scholars and philosophers as a way to interpret their their civil code. Yeah, that's got to be an interesting exercise for someone who's trained in a common law context, because normally when you talk about this, this distinction, and I agree with what I'm guessing is your view that it's sort of artificial at this point. But but it's still nevertheless it's it's there this notion that common lawyers and civil lawyers are different, and the, the way normally it is framed is in all the procedural details that come up in an arbitration 
uh, like the yeah, rules of evidence and how, how you plead and all these like uh, craft things. But I think it's also something should be said about the, the big differences as well. For example, how you approach a problem or how, you know, yeah. what kind of sources you use as a lawyer. Right. I think that's the one time that I will say that there is a division between civil and common law. In where? In Why? practice. In practice. When you're saying, oh, we can't hire you because you're not a civil law lawyer. And then you say, okay, what does that really mean? What does that really mean? What are you really not getting out of me that you're getting out of civil law? And I think it's the use, the application and the problem solving techniques that certain lawyers use based off their backgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's actually a point that we have to, to concede, I think. Yeah. But do you believe in this division? Well, it's, it, I mean, I'm sorry to be, to be an academic, but we have to specify what, what we're talking about, really. I believe in the division uh, in terms of, uh, division is a, is a bad word, but okay. in, in terms of comparative law. Comparative. If, and traditionally, if, you, if you're looking at you know, judiciaries and, and how different jurisdictions function, you know, how, how, how is the legislative apparatus structured and how do courts work and that kind of thing. In that respect, of course, it exists not only historically, but as we speak, the common law English speaking world is different if we're talking about litigation and constitutional law and stuff like that, than the civil law jurisdictions are. But it's not uh, uh, airtight uh, divisions between them. And many countries such as Sweden are, of course, in between. And it is changing because the world is changing and the world is, is becoming smaller. And exhibit A is international arbitration. And so I think in, in our specific context, the international arbitration context, it's not really fruitful to talk about it. Maybe as, as we just mentioned in a few specific instances and also as part of a wider discussion of example, for example, if you're talking about arbitrators and who they are and where they're from, that is, of course, where they trained. It's not necessarily a common law versus civil law thing, but your first, your primary law degree tends to uh, affect you and the way you approach legal problems. So that's that's relevant, but I don't think it's very useful to to pit the two against each other. No. No, I think I think you're right that arbit arbitration is serving to kind of like harmonize these two historically polar positions. Um, and I know that working in, I think, you know, I have a bit of a unique experience because I, as you said, I've been like supplanted into the civil law workspace. Um, so I'm working along with people that are, <laughs> what does it sound extreme? Uh, but I've, you know, I'm working with people that turn first to the scholars where I turn first to the cases, yeah. um, especially yeah. when it has to do with investment law. Um, but I... <clears throat> that's interesting I would probably go to the scholar before I went to to the cases too so that that's just that proves the point that your primary legal education is still relevant in forming you definitely definitely oh, and I think and okay so now if we kind of flip it on its head so let's say we both you know now we're pleading a case in front of a tribunal and we're listing both scholars and um, cases to kind of highlight certain things in our opening statements, for example, what would you say if you were an arbitrator would be the most persuasive to hear uh, on the receiving end of an argument as far as support for someone's argument? If they say, well, indirect expropriation is defined in this way, according to Professor Schroyer or according to, you know, ADC versus Hungary. Well, the, the boring answer is, of course, that it depends on, on the argument in question because because technically neither is binding or even persuasive f to the tribunal so it depends on the nature of the argument is it, is it a case that is exactly on point and that has been cited forty-five thousand times before or is it well, i mean schroyer is a good example because he is widely held to be the authority on, on the exit convention for example so it, it depends a little bit on on the context i think although i think it's a it's a good question because I will tell you from a common law perspective, if I was an arbitrator, and I'm not saying this if you plan on appointing me that I'm going to ignore all uh, scholars' opinions, but if I hear someone saying like, 
you know, Gary Bourne says on page 53 of his treatise, da, 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 da. It's like, okay, I've, I've met him in person. <laughs> this, this isn't, I, I feel like when you quote someone, they have to be Socrates or a justice of the Supreme But the, Court. I mean, that argument is just as well, you can use it in, in the opposing context because Gary Bourne is probably on the tribunal that you are citing as, <laughs> as an authority because that's a problem in our field that the people who are judging are also the people who are writing books generally and, and who act as counsel and as experts. So you get this sort of uh, echo chamber where Schroyer is on a tribunal citing Dolzer who is citing Schroyer and you know it just goes around. Inception. <laughs> yeah. Inception, Arbitration Inception, Joel's second movie installment <laughs> following Common Law versus Civil War. Oh, yeah. My whole I didn't even crew. think about that, but you're completely right. I mean, who if you're talking about who's deciding these cases, it's 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 a it's a circular argument almost people are citing themselves and referring to themselves yeah so it, it has to come down to to uh, to the arguments I mean to to uh, how good is the reasoning and the source that you are claiming as authority I think and then right. to, also maybe it, to, to pick up on another separate thing that I think is maybe different common law as opposed to civil law is also uh, the adversarial versus inquisitorial nature of the proceeding because in your common law uh, ideal universe, you would have opposing counsel calling that out immediately. Definitely. Um, and whereas you see, have a Swedish arbitrator who doesn't say anything in the entire case, and then you're like, "What am I paying you for?" Uh, because I'm a, I'm a common law lawyer, and I want you to like have some That's have true. some sort of input or some but, sort of comment. But it strikes me now, as we talk about this, I did six months of court service in Sweden with the intention of fulfilling two years, which is what you need to you know, start judges training in Sweden before I got my PhD position. So I, I just jumped ship. That's the extent to which I have practiced in Swedish court. Have you ever practiced in US court? Um, yeah, kind of criminal court. Okay, I, but, but I not, was in arraignments. No, no. Nope. Okay, yeah. Because that's my point is this, we are part of a generation to which this doesn't really matter, this distinction, because we are not, we are being brought up in the international arbitration sphere right? as our first sort of home turf and not as uh, for older generations in, in the domestic litigation scene before you then, as a second step, maybe move, move ahead, move on and start working in arbitration. Right. No, you're, you're definitely right. But the, but the thing is, and we go back to this like LLM problem is that you're educated in a certain sense. So, and you, so you have your, you ha you're bringing bad habits, even though you start your career in international arbitration, you're being your bad habits. Good habits. From you're, good you're, habits. you're Swedish now. Right. right. But we're, in, you know, we're, we're I, humbly the best at everything, I, but we well, don't really talk about it. Amen. Amen. But I think that I'm also coming from American background, and I think there's a lot of bad habits. Uh, for example, our view on how evidence should be handled in arbitration definitely comes from our background of like these in insane rules on evidence, whereas the <laughs> Swedish rules of evidence are like, oh, it's a piece of paper, bring it into the courtroom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think that I think that could be also a distinction as well. The um, I don't know, maybe it's just, just a US, but I don't, I don't know the UK system very well. No, but I think it is, I, and I know even, even less than you, but I have the impression that it's more accepted in all common law systems that you, um, you've, you, the initial uh, document in which you make your case doesn't have to be super specific. You're sort of outlining what you think is a tentative case, and then you ask for a lot of documentation to support what you think is going to be your case. And then exactly. the big thing comes. Whereas in many civil law jurisdictions, you spend a lot of time working on the initial document and you want to have all the documentation supporting it before you send it to the court or the tribunal for the first time. So there's like Good point. Ask, asking you know, the, the fishing expeditions to use a popular and, and a strong phrase is, is far away from civil law traditions, I think. Definitely. Definitely. No, I think that is a very valid distinction. So it does come up. I mean... But to say that it is a distinction that would, you know, like, what is what is the purpose of that distinction other than to be aware of it and to know that other people are doing things different ways for certain reasons, but it has nothing to do with the fact that you can't be hired 
or that yeah, you're going to yeah, yeah. bring invalid arguments or that you're going to be biased and sitting on an arbitral tribunal. Yeah, and it's not the case that the arbitrator from France is not going to like discovery, whereas the arbitrator from <laughs> Australia is just because they're from different backgrounds. It's, this seems like a good premise for the episode of The Good Wife, where it's like a French arbitrator. So they'd be like, I don't understand a thing. <laughs> uh, it's not that dramatic. Is that it for us? Yeah, I I think I think we've bashed this to the ground and but good. also gave it good, some good night's work. I feel good about it. Let's uh, tell people where they can find us. You do that as part of All your right. Twitter training. As part of my Twitter training, you can find us at at the arb station. You can email us at the arbitration station at gmail.com. You can also go to our website at www.backup. HTTP. Colon. Backslash. Backslash. Thearbitrationstation.com. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. And we're also available on SoundCloud. See you around.